On December 26, 1909, a letter to the editor appeared in the newspapers of Providence, Rhode Island. The author, who spoke of himself in the third person, stated that while in the business section of the city on Christmas Eve, about 6 p.m., the writer noted excited groups of people on the street corners, and mystified individuals everywhere pointing to the western sky. The writer, however, was less amazed than were the pedestrians, and, quote, he beheld the planet Venus was the center of attraction. It seems the general idea existed that the planet was nothing more than a searchlight from some airship. The author of this letter was a 19-year-old H.P. Lovecraft, and the airship of which he speaks is the topic of this episode. This is episode 25, The Tillinghast Airship. once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. One of the more famous episodes in the history of unexplained phenomena in the United States is the Phantom Airship Wave of 1896 and 1897. The imagery of the aircraft are interesting, as they were concrete, fairly low-tech craft, usually balloons with propellers attached, the machinery of propulsion sometimes visible, and a gondola suspended beneath, very much like the zeppelins and blimps that would later be developed. The late 19th century saw an explosion in air experimentation with aircraft, which of course culminated with the Wright Brothers' flight in 1903, and the appearance reflected what people legitimately expected to see in the skies, while the experiences themselves seemed to foreshadow the later UFO encounters of the 20th century. They seemed to represent an interesting stage of the development of UFO lore, where the accounts had developed but the craft themselves weren't yet distinctly non-terrestrial in appearance, and for the most part, there are a few exceptions. Pilots of said craft were seen as human rather than alien. But though most discussions center on the 1896-1897 wave, lesser known are the periodic airship panics which came in the following years. Where the first wave had had an air of harmless experimentation, the airships often being seen as very real craft, piloted by very human aviators, the subsequent ones began to take on a more frightful air, with the craft being increasingly seen as invaders, usually Germans, which is not quite so surprising as we're dealing with a lead-up to World War I. Rumors began circulating a few months later of what was termed an electric star, which was said to be an invention of Thomas Edison's, a sort of aerial light bulb on a gigantic scale. Reports in this wave began in the upper Midwest, and seemed to have spread up and down the east coast of the United States and into the east coast of Canada. 
Another wave of sightings was more or less concurrent with the first Phantomare ship event, but rather than the United States mostly appeared in Canada, mainly Manitoba and British Columbia. The Canadian flap was of obvious hot air balloons, as opposed to the steampunk aircraft seen in America. This imagery was doubtless derived from the very real expeditions of Swedish balloonist S.A. André, who was attempting to reach the Arctic. André's expedition, by the way, proved fatal. The balloon crashing in 1897 and all three team members perishing in the Arctic cold. A third wave also arose. In 1908, development of the German Zeppelins began. Panic began, particularly notable in Britain and its colonies, as a known belligerent power began to dominate the skies, and it was feared they would launch aerial attacks. From this development grew another panic, which started in New Zealand in 1909, concerning sightings of more mystery airships which were this time definitively Zeppelin-esque in appearance. A similar panic spread a few years later in Britain itself, where another series of mystery Zeppelins was seen in 1912. In the years immediately following the Wright Brothers' flight in 1903, there was an explosion in the flight of experimental heavier-than-aircraft. The frequency of these tests reached a frenzy pitch by the latter years of the first decade of the 1900s. On July 25, 1909, French aviator Louis Blériot made the first airplane flight across the English Channel. The next month, a convention of aviators met at Rheims, France. A predecessor of today's air shows, the Rheims meeting featured some of the more preeminent flying men of the day, including Louis Blériot and Englishman Hubert Latham. Not to be outdone by Europe, however, experimentation was taking place in the United States as well. On July 24th, the day before Blériot's flight, the Boston Globe carried a story indicating that an American aviator named Frank W. Goodale, undertaking a flight from the Palisades to a park near Newark, New Jersey, crashed his airplane in a forested swampy area near Kingsland, north of Hoboken. In August, an Ohio man named Walter Willman was once more attempting the North Pole flight previously tried by S.A. Andre. Transpolar flight was not actually achieved until Richard E. Byrd made his attempt in 1926. Humorously, in Chicopee, Massachusetts, in the vicinity of Springfield, a man named Daniel Miller was arrested for public drunkenness on August 23rd. As Miller described the circumstances which has led up to his arrest, he had been a passenger on board an airship called the Meteor, bound to New York from Montreal. A friend of mine owns the ship, and we decided to make a trip to New York. We loaded enough provisions aboard to supply us through the trip. After we began to drink a little to keep ourselves warm, as the air was rather cool. When the booze began to get in its work, the fellows began to fight. They picked on me and I retaliated, and somebody shouted, put him off. I ran out on the platform and climbed aboard the rigging of the ship, with the others in close pursuit. Finally, I lost my hold, and here I am in Chicopee. A likely story. However, it goes to show just how prevalent airship mania truly was if it was being used as an explanation for public drunkenness. On December 5, 1909, a story appeared in the Boston Globe detailing an airplane designed by Englishman George T. Warwick, owner of an automobile and bicycle manufacturing company from Springfield. This new airplane is really a machine with revolving planes. 
which, it is asserted, will give the aerial navigator perfect control in all kinds of air currents and at the same time develop a high rate of speed. That it is capable of flying has been demonstrated beyond peradventure. The airplane has lifted itself even with the slight current of air caused by the revolution of planes as it stands in its frame. Mr. Warwick first devised a model with a set of eight airplanes with 16 square feet of surface, which can lift more than their own weight, with the engine making only 30 revolutions a minute. This airplane, he further asserts, can lift an additional 15 pounds, with the motor revolving 120 times a minute, and a set having 944 square feet of surface, he calculates, would have a lifting power of 1,280 pounds. An airship of four planes is his latest device. These are made to revolve in a frame. They are three feet square and three inches thick, covered with paper over top and bottom, thus permitting the wind to pass between them. By moving a lever, these planes revolve on a frame, and as they turn, they meet the air current and thus de develop a remarkable lifting power. The lifting power, of course, varies according to the angle the machine takes in its flight. It develops its greatest power, however, when in a perfectly horizontal position, because the air currents strike the planes and send the machines ahead, while the air passing through the planes between the paper covering also materially assists its rise. Mr. Warwick says that his model in 128 revolutions can lift 30 pounds, but the larger model he is devising is 18 feet long and will consist of six frames, with four planes to a frame and six-inch openings, which will give the machine a third more lifting capacity. When Mr. Warwick finally perfects his airship, the frames will be made of steel and the planes covered with varnished silk or canvas. The cage, with its gasoline motor, will occupy the center of the structure, and there will be a seat for the pilot and a steering wheel similar to that used on an automobile. The frame will be extended below the cage motor, etc., in order to safeguard the machine when striking the ground. Mr. Warwick certainly has an ingenious device for steering his airship. He has made use of a two-bladed propeller, which aids in sending the machine forward, and to the rear, he asserts, will enable the operator to steer in any direction with or against the wind. Not to be outdone by its competitor, on December 13th, the Boston Herald ran an interview with Wallace E. Tillinghast, steam fitter of Worcester, who said that three months before, he had invented an airplane. Worcester, Massachusetts, December 13th. Away from the scenes of public controversies, and with the eyes of aeronauts busy in other fields, Wallace E. Tillinghast, vice president of a local manufacturing company, working quietly, has invented, built, and tested what he says is an airplane capable of carrying three passengers with a weight limit of 200 pounds each, a distance of at least 300 miles without a stop to replenish the supply of petrol, and if necessary, at a rate of 120 miles an hour. Mr. Tillinghast states that he has gone in his airplane to the Statue of Liberty in New York City, thence to Boston, and back to the starting point without alighting. This was on the night of September 8th. The machine is to be brought to Worcester in February for demonstration, and Mr. Tillinghast expects to enter it in the international races being arranged for the vicinity of Boston next summer. In describing the airplane, Mr. Tillinghast said, It is of the monoplane type, with a spread of 72 feet, weighs 1,550 pounds, 
and is furnished with a 128 horsepower gasoline engine made under my own direction and specifications. It differs from others in the spread of the canvas, the spread plane, and in other stability features. Special attention is given to making it adaptable for high speed. All of the important parts are covered by patents. Other distinguishing features are that it cannot be capsized, is easily controlled, and the occupants ride on the body of the machine instead of with the body of the machine behind them. The headlight is made by the use of acetylene gas generated on the machine. Regarding the speed of the machine if driven at its best and at the highest altitude reached, Mr. Tillinghast does not desire to give out exact information, saying he wishes to enter the international races in a fair trial and without rivals knowing what his machine can do. He said, The speed of the machine so much exceeds the speed reached at the meeting at Rhymes that I feel sure that the result will be that the Tillinghast airplane is more than an also-ran. The altitude records are greater than any made by, by any American or foreign-made airplane. One advantage in mine is that the mechanics who have been in my employ are thoroughly competent to run the machine and have done so with success, so that in every case, it is not necessary that the inventor or owner navigate his invention. The Jules Verne novel, Rober the Conqueror, in which the Captain Nemo-esque antagonist pilots an airship called the Albatross, had appeared in English at this point, possibly influencing the conception of the craft. Its sequel, The Master of the World, had not yet been translated. Rober the Conqueror opens with the antagonist planting a flag atop a Statue of Liberty. E.B. Hanna, a resident of South Windham, Connecticut, claimed that he saw some mysterious lights the night the man was, say was said to have made his New York flight. After the initial interview with Tillinghast, Hanna retroactively claimed that the lights he saw were actually the aircraft Tillinghast had invented. This was not an isolated incident. Cyril Herrick had seen something he termed a double meteor in August 1909, several months before, yet he also retroactively made those lights into a sighting of the Tillinghast machine. In fact, he had initially claimed in no uncertain words that he did not believe it was an aircraft, citing the speed with which the lights traveled. Several people from Hartford, Connecticut, also swore that they had seen some sort of bizarre object in the skies over their city in September 1909. They, too, declared that it was a sighting of Tillinghast Airplane. The Boston Globe at first seemed to be rather skeptical of the situation, though eventually they covered the sightings with the same zeal as anyone else. Commenting on Tillinghast and his description of the plane, they said, This description is not particularly full of detail, but it is given so that if at any time Mr. Tillinghast should be delayed in one of his flights and shouldn't get under cover before daylight, and you should see it shooting past at a height of 4,000 feet or less, you will know what it is. A further point of identification may be the three fat men sitting nonchalantly in the three seats, their faces showing the ennui they feel over the whole business. Tillinghast was also scoffed at by some of the more established aeronauts. Glenn Curtis, who had made the first flight of more than a mile in July 1908 in a plane of his own design, the Junebug, was cautious in his opinion, stating that it was extraordinary if facts can be proved. While Wilbur Wright flat out claimed that Tillinghast was a crank. By a few days after his initial interview, however, 
Tillinghast became far less interested in speaking of his airplane. When reporters managed to speak with him at all, he would only confirm statements made in the initial interview and would not volunteer initial additional information, nor disclose where, exactly, the airplane was kept. It appeared in Marlboro on the evening of December 14th and had been seen here no less than eight times between the 14th and the 23rd. As it was described, quote, It usually appears in the heavens at about 7.30 in the evening, turns around, and goes in the direction of Worcester. One witness, railwayman Guy Lane, estimated it was going at least 30 miles an hour, as it was keeping pace quite easily with his train. On December 20th, an immigration official named Arthur Ho saw the mysterious lights over Boston Harbor. The story was covered in the Boston Globe. The next day, the Boston Herald said that the lights Ho had seen were not a Tillinghast airship, but only the, uh, the lights on the mast of a ship at that time in the harbor, the James S. Whitney. On December 22nd, the aircraft made an appearance in Worcester, startling Christmas shoppers as, quote, a brilliant ray cutting the murk zipped through the air. It was first seen toward the southeast in the direction of Grafton, it was said, and then gradually grew brighter as it approached Worcester proper. It seemed to be aloft a thousand feet, and the rays apparently proceeded from a lamp about the size of a searchlight of an automobile. As it came nearer, it was apparent that the lamp was attached to a large black object, but the machine was so high that its form could not be distinguished. The object sailed over City Hall and proceeded to above the State Mutual Life Insurance Company's building. It then disappeared west, towards Marlboro. It reappeared in Worcester about an hour later, pausing above the insurance building it had previously visited. Hundreds of Worcesterites looked toward the lights and, quote, The darkness made it difficult to describe the character of the machine, but there is a general agreement by the observers that it was a type of airplane. A policeman says he saw broad, projecting shelves that looked like the planes he had seen in pictures of the Wright brothers' invention. He also says it was a monstrous affair, for the dark blotch indicated a great expanse of wings. Other individuals claimed to have seen people in the aircraft. Some said one, others two. Most of Worcester, quote, was in, immediate, was in an imminent danger of dislocating their necks from looking at the airship, which eventually moved off again toward the southeast. As Christmas approached, so did airship fever. Again the next night, the craft appeared in the Worcester area, once again moving from the southeast and passing over the city proper, where it paused to flash its, light at wit its lights at witnesses. It was also seen over Leominster, Fitchburg, Maynard, and Boston, and on the 24th it was seen in Framingham, Lynn, Revere, Boston, Fitchburg, Marlborough, and above Rollstone Hill in Worcester. But the luster was beginning to wear off. For example, as pertains to the December 24th sightings, the Fitchburg Sentinel wrote, They saw it west of Worcester at 6.30 o'clock. They saw it west of Boston at 6.30 o'clock. They saw it west of Lynn at 6.30 o'clock. And they saw it west of this city at 6.30 o'clock. It could be seen west of anywhere in these parts at that hour, for the lovely Venus, Evening Star, was on duty then, and in that quarter of the heavens. If the sky is clear, the ship will appear in the southwesterly heavens as soon as it grows dark, and will again work its powerful searchlight, 
and be under perfect control of its wizard operator. If your imagination is good, you will hear the whirring of powerful engines, and you may also make out a dim form of a monoplane type of aerial craft, and always the ship will be in the southwest, moving slowly down to meet the horizon. For that is the path that lovely Venus takes. If the skies are overcast with clouds, don't bother to look for the ship, for it won't be out. Although more and more skepticism was starting to creep into accounts of the Tillinghast invention, its most impressive sightings were yet to occur. Only the few believe it's Castor and Pollux, declared the headlines on Christmas Day, Castor and Pollux being the two brightest stars in the Gemini constellation. Several areas in Boston reported seeing the aircraft in flight. Now it possessed two lights, one at the front and one at the rear. Crowds of people gathered on streets to gaze up at the sky. The tracks of streetcars were blocked by the throngs. A policeman and a pedestrian in Boston Common supposedly got in a fistfight over the airship's validity. One man saw a red and green light and scoffed at neighbors who could not see a difference in coloration. Others argued with another man who said that the lights were not moving at all. Some Bostonites felt sure it was going to crash into the steeple of a church on Park Street, as it seemed the light was barely higher than the steeple's peak. The two lights were seen to dim and brighten alternately. It was also seen by over two dozen streetcar passengers in Newton, who had heard the hum of its motors and saw only one light as opposed to the two seen in Boston. It was seen for about 45 minutes, appearing at 7 o'clock and disappearing by 7.45. Cynically, the Boston Globe noted that, quote, The big phantom craft was first sighted from Newton by Walter E. Mars, who once mistook the U.S. mail automobile for an ambulance. Witnesses also included local politicians. A fireman said he saw steam, or a cloud of some sort, periodically rising up from the craft. Up near Lynn and Revere, the craft was also seen, despite attempts made by a policeman named Roof Green to convince people it was only a stationary light. Still further north, towards Newburyport, it was also seen. Though interestingly, the light seen in this area appears to have been thought of as the airship only in hindsight. So with a flood of reporters descending on Worcester, as well as, quote, the representatives of foreign interests, Several prominent businessmen of the city resolved to put pressure on Tillinghast to produce or deny his aircraft, to make clear to him, as it was said, that the city does not sanction the peculiar brand of notoriety in which it is basked. The reticence to speak about his supposed invention had increased to the extent that, as reported in the Boston Globe, Tillinghast, in the meantime, is absolutely incommunicado. Even his closest friends don't say airship to him these days. When he hears the word, he is apt to say things that don't sound charitable at Christmas time. The notoriety that has followed him since the mysterious lights were seen has seriously interfered with his business and with his home life. He has not been permitted an hour's peace. At his office, there are constantly two or three persons who want to know something. At the door of his place of business and at his home, he is closely watched by mysterious men. When he is at home, his telephone rings constantly. But though he routinely hung up on reporters, he confirmed the initial story that had appeared to J. Walter Flagg, a member of the New England Aero Club. 
but although he confirmed his flight to Mr. Flagg, he still would not elaborate on the event any further. Mr. Flagg, though, was no more convinced than were many other New Englanders, and he said of Tillinghast, When I make my formal report to the Aero Club of New England, I shall state in substance that I believe this man is a faker, that the claims he made are unfounded, and that I do not believe he has made a single flight. You may better understand how thoroughly convinced I am of the truth of the report I have made when I add that Mr. Tillinghast said to me, I have done all they say I have, and more. I have made a hundred flights in my machine, and more. He had a chance to give out a sensible story based on scientific principles and refused to do it. At first I had information to lead me to believe that Tillinghast had invented an airplane, but I found this to be without foundation. After a searching investigation, I do not find one fact to warrant the statement that he has ever made an ascension or completed a machine in which to fly. A 21-year-old named G.F. Russell, a native of Marblehead, came to New York on December 30th and claimed that he, not Wallace Tillinghast, was pilot of the airplane seen over New England in the previous weeks. He was testing a sort of gyroscopic stabilization device. He took off, he claimed, from Salem and flew around for usually about an hour before landing. This served to put an end to the stories of the sightings of the Tillinghast machine in the press. Another man, a native of Nashua, New Hampshire, named Lieutenant A.L. Rhodes, was also testing a model of aircraft. But while the main events of the New England Phantom airplane wave were over, the controversy over le- the legitimacy of Tillinghast's creation continued. The next year, Wallace Tillinghast claimed that he had sold a few of his airplanes in the half year after the airship wave had taken place. He was, quote, making arrangements to go into the manufacture of airplanes on a large scale, he said. The reporter who wrote the July 1910 story on Tillinghast's plans claimed that, unlike the reporters from months before, he had seen the plane in a warehouse in Worcester, but declined to publicize the exact location. Secretary Herbert N. Davison of the Worcester Board of Trade also saw the plane. Charles J. Glidden was a former president of the same aeronautical club as J. Walter Flagg. He wrote in March 1911 that he, on the other hand, was convinced of the legitimacy of the invention. He claimed to have seen it as well, although there are discrepancies between Glidden's and Davison's accounts. Glidden came that the monoplane he saw was the fourth Tillinghast had built. But according to the earlier story told by Davison and the unnamed reporter the year before, that plane was Tillinghast's sixth. In a 1911 interview held with a Boston reporter, Tillinghast indicated that he was done with aeronautics, and now that he had figured out the mechanisms involved in building an aircraft, there was no longer any need to. And with this, Tillinghast passed out of the public eye. So was Wallace Tillinghast's airplane a hoax or reality? Most people today accept that it was a hoax, citing that witnesses very rarely actually saw the lights move, including that they were, indeed, some sort of very real celestial object like Venus or some particularly bright star. Tillinghast's reticence to bring forth any real confirmation of his claims is also part of it. Also, keep in mind that even after the initial wave of sightings was done, and Tillinghast did show people the airplane, or at least an airplane, he still refused to fly it. 
and although he stated that his refusal to speak to reporters in December 1909 was due to monetary reasons, there's still a shadow cast on his claims. Personally, I wondered to what extent it was just newspaper competition. Recall that the Boston Globe had broken the story of George T. Warwick's invention of an airplane, and then the Boston Herald swiftly followed this up with a first interview with Wallace Tillinghast. To speak to its possible legitimacy, Tillinghast was certainly in no need of money, so whatever the motive for a hoax might have been, we can at least say it was, it was not that. He was vice president of an industrial steam fitting company, the Sure Seal Company, and had patents out on various sorts of steam valves. These valves he manufactured in his Worcester factory and shipped all across the world. So he had no monetary reason to hoax, and the airplanes he did eventually produce, although a possibility was brought up that they might have merely been models or replicas, were sufficient to fool a number of individuals into believing them legitimate, including an aviator who by all rights should have known that the airplane he was looking at was a fake. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so until next time... This is Andrew, signing off.